record. All right, welcome to You Talking With Greg. I am thrilled uh, to have Layman. I haven't had too many conversations with Layman, uh, with you, uh, but I swear every one of them uh, gets me charged and excited. So I don't want to overshoot our expectations here, <laughs> but uh, I will simply say that that's a fact relative to the four or five conversations that we've had or whatever. So I'm thrilled to welcome you. Uh, I'm really glad your willingness to come on and share with them. Super excited to get to know some of your history uh, and then dialogue about this crazy world that we're in and the space that we're in. So welcome. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. I like you a lot, and I don't want to set the bar too high, but this is going to be the greatest conversation in the history of discourse. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And that's underselling where my statement was, so fucking A. All right. <laughs> um, and as we talked a little bit, so I, and actually, you know, as I was thinking about this, I know very little about your story, Layman. You know, if somehow our souls just sort of sync up and that we were going to, that was our theme last time we were conversing. But, uh, you know, I just don't know how you got into this space and what your history is. So one of my big goals uh, was to understand your story and the trajectory of your thinking and experiencing and all of that. You know, the more I think about it, the more I connect to things in my early childhood. Okay. You know, my, uh, my maternal grandmother, Ruth, who uh, died when I was really young, left me specifically a set of books that I was hmm. too young to read, but I admired them on the bookshelf. Beautiful. Be a lot of hermetic, Rosicrucian, alchemical stuff. Huh. Gorgeous, you know, maps of the nine worlds of the Norse and pages out of old alchemical textbooks. So uh, I, I was really enriched and turned on by all that stuff. I knew there was yeah. there were people out there throughout history who'd been thinking in this way of making these, you know, the way Kabbalah is attempt to make a Superman of some kind. She must have been a remarkable. Was she? Was that emblematic of the kind of person was she? Was that that she was, or is that just a, a unique feature of her in her engagement with you? Because that's a really interesting thing, and I wish we would do that more in this world, you know. But the idea that you would hand down to, uh, you know, your grandchildren, you know, the, these kind of archetypal <laughs> structures—that's beautiful. I think she was. Uh... I mean, throughout her life, she became an increasingly wild and intuitive character. Okay. And I think uh -huh. just had a feeling that this stuff was really interesting and that she personally didn't have the time or the mm. right intellect to work on it, but she knew it was for somebody. And, what, <laughs> so. and she had a sense that that would be you. And she obviously yeah. had some good intuition <laughs> there. Huh? <laughs> so I had that in the back of my mind okay. as a kid. Mm -hmm. and, and so yeah. when I would have... Uh, when I would read widely or when I would have personal uh, strange experiences of various kinds, mm -hmm. I had the sense that there was something like a map and there was something mm -hmm. like a technology, a set of architectures that this could all fit into. Okay. All right. Um, and along, I got sort of, oh, I don't know. I got really into mythology and Campbell and Jung and things like that. And that moved right. me into surrealism and moved me into mm. studies on the unconscious and hypnotherapy and, more kind of occult stuff, but then you wanted to be more rational about it. So like, what could they really be saying? <laughs> right. How, what, what's your uh, basic age range here? When, do, when does this journey? Uh, well, I'm probably, when I go to grade seven, so we move, I grew up really rural. Okay. We moved to yep. a larger city for grade mm -hmm. seven. My science project in grade seven is a, a 3D model of simultaneous cosmologies from different periods of history. <laughs> So at that oh, point, clearly it's a regular kid, then. <laughs> yeah, regular kid stuff, you know, <laughs> and probably right after that, probably around 14 or 15, I get really into surrealism and 
the attempt to bring subconscious and conscious intelligence together. And that fascination never leaves me. For the record, I was trying to read at that stage in the game. So, you know, we're, we're on different, you know, different developmental trajectories. But, you know, I catch up okay. <laughs> I was slow in some other ways, I think. <laughs> um, I guess by the end of high school, I was with a small group of people who were trying to uh, combine what we were hearing about science with okay. our feelings about mysticism. And we sort of tried to think of like, if everything was the same stuff, if it was all just information being processed through awareness, what would that be like? How could you make a map of everything? We'd have these tremendous, you know, interpersonal transcendent experience exchanges. Wow. Then after that, I went to university thinking very seriously about psychology or philosophy. Right. Did a few years of that, but sort of wanted, found I wanted to get much more into an experiential and shamanic way of approaching things. What you said there, I just, I need to double click on what you said Please there. Do. It's actually yeah. um, the, so if I had to say like, all right, let's say hone in on a core ontology from my, you know, uh, both brilliant, but unbelievably impoverished empiricism. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but that I'm not growing into the idea that it's the metabolization of energy information uh, of, of observer behaved energy information between fields. I mean, I, if you really go super freaking deep into quantum relativistic field theory, a philosophy of science and mysticism. So just the way you phrase that was very, very, it just caught me in a very profound way. The way you talked about sort of what you were seeking in terms of sort of the ultimate non-dual framing and the blending with what would be um, congruent with a naturalistic ontology, but also then expand into mysticism. So that just was a, a brilliant, uh, just caught my ear in a particular way, the way you framed it. Yeah, I, it's curious to me now thinking back that there's an instinct all along for uh, super coherent combining of disciplines, this, this feeling that they've got to fit together somehow. And maybe right. that's selfish. Maybe it's just that I love them all. And so I assume yeah. they fit together. That's, but uh, that, well, that's I would think up our, I, I, <laughs> I said I was born a coherentist. You know, that was like I have to somehow find whatever the abstract coherent frame of reference. That's certainly that. That's my beacon of resonance for sure, too. So, OK, so then. Uh, did you, you go off to college? I mean, what? Uh, in a... I was I was at the University of Victoria for a couple of years and then I left that okay. and went to live in Belize hmm. uh, and got more involved in spiritual communities and my own philosophical researches and ended up teaching yoga and meditation. Okay. Ended up just constantly reconsidering all of that and being changed by my own internal experiences to the point where I ended up hanging out in certain kinds of communities like the integral scene. Right, right. Right. Really curious to meet people who were uh, organizing themselves around a big map. Yep. I wanted to know that I could speak their language. I was really super obsessed by other big picture thinkers and by a lot of thinkers who were wrestling with how to get beyond the contemporary situation. Right. I found it in right. Nietzsche. I found it in Heidegger. People were saying, okay. here's where we're at. These are the yep. underlying structures of the moment. Here's yep. where we need to get to. How do we get there? Mm. So I'm definitely, I want to hone in. I'm really curious as to how you encountered Wilbur uh, and the integral community, what's your take, and then who these other, like you said, Nietzsche, Heidegger, uh, but I am actually particularly curious to get your integral spin. Okay. <laughs> well, in my integral origin story, yeah, <laughs> uh, back to, I mean, when I was a teenager, we had a, a 
essential Ken Wilber collection of stuff. I had this okay. picture of his bald head and neck. I always imagined it was an, on the, the neck of a brontosaurus or something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when I read it as a kid, I thought I would just, oh yeah, obviously. Like I, uh, I sort of agree with what he was saying, but it didn't seem that important. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You know, well, all right. I mean, we're already half coherent. This guy's just putting in the Lego blocks. You know, let's let's. Do it. Who doesn't know that? I mean, come on. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. 15 years later, um, I have uh, like a peak experience that lasts for a couple of weeks. And afterwards, I feel like I've got all these other rooms in the house. I got all this okay. space to fill. And I, I only want to fill it by people who are engaged in trying to understand and go beyond what we might call pluralism, postmodernism, whatever that is. So he's one of those guys. I come across his books. I'm like, oh, I know that guy. I thought he was working on this problem. You realize he's got a language. He's got an organized set of these are the pieces you need. And here's how I talk about them. I thought, okay, if I'm serious about this, I have to at least master this language. Okay. So how will I know if I master this language? Well, I find the online community, the official mm -hmm. community online. And I show up under a pseudonym and I try to talk to them. And I it's like a Turing test, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. If they don't detect that I'm bogus, then I Not probably a, know the language. I'm, a, I'm an integral robot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to play the game of integral robot. <laughs> anyway, so I get enough positive feedback from these people. And I go, okay, yep. they're convinced. And therefore I can speak this language. And then nothing, I just leave it. That was okay. my whole interest. But about a year later, I'm still working on these same things. And I start to have this overwhelming hunger for community and conversation. Mm. And so I go back in with a different name. I start to get involved and I run into some people like Bruce Alderman. Well, we do a lot of work with him at the Foundation for Integral Religion and Spirituality. And he and I do the Integral Stage podcast. We're starting a book together on our metaphysics. Right. But Bruce recognizes me under my new identity he's like you sound like that guy who was here a year ago under this other name <laughs> he cracks the turing code <laughs> exactly so i think okay this guy this guy gets me then all right i can right. hang with this guy totally and uh while i'm there everybody sort of just bumps me along right it's like hey do you want to have a free subscription do you want to be one of the uh managers and moderators on the site hey do you want to come to conference hey do you have a paper to submit to this so i'm just I just commit to saying yes. Brilliant. And pretty soon I seem like a regular central fixture in parts of the community. Okay. And I've got a certain skill set for taking in the ideas and digging into them and relating to other sets of ideas and rephrasing them for myself and a certain internal necessity to, you know, every morning for me is a notebook and a diagram. Oh, here's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did that this morning. I think we're living parallel lives. I had a. I woke up at four and had a, I had three diagrams in my head after my sleep. So. Yeah, it's funny. Like I, I think. I mean, some people who detect me using complicated speech patterns uh -huh. think like, "Oh, he's very intellectual. He's very language oriented." I'm like, no, I'm very picture oriented and very emotion oriented. But I get that you wouldn't get that on the other side of the words I produced. <laughs> Right, no, it's a, there's a loop, right? There's a phenomenological loop, folks, and then you know words fall out, but it is the pictorial whole. <laughs> so that's uh, you know we could go into what what my take is on integral as a theory, as a community, that kind of stuff. But from there, I end up branching out. So now I'm in the meta modern community. I'm in the game B community. And they have a lot of overlapping territory and some new 
meta discourse is emerging, which has a lot in common with your work. And Bruce and I have ended up, you know, being those small handful of people who've talked to almost everybody or to all the different facets of the community. And I just want to, I personally, I want to soak in it. You know, I want to blend all the different kinds of this new space into myself. I don't know why yes. I want that. <laughs> well, you were born to do it. <laughs> Seems to me. <laughs> Seems to me. That's what you're telling me. You know, I'm a clinician. That's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing what, what is, what's the true soul that this thing is moving towards? It's a transcendental beacon of coherence inside your soul. I do seem to have the instinct, the drive, the background, the skill set, and the positioning, and to enjoy it a lot. Okay. I'm still a little skeptical, but I know that those things are there. <laughs> well, I think I think that's unbelievably beautiful and crucial. Uh, you know, both in terms of that it that it's a an organizing system, and I mean, certainly, I, I you know, at a very rudimentary logical analysis, my argument is based. This is exactly the kind of consolidation. You, what you are being would represent along a coherent consolidation, integrated pluralistic view, phenomenologically, pictorially, linguistically, boom. I mean, is that, is that not what uh, uh, would be a crucial part of a healthy transition from this time between worlds that we find ourselves in? I, I think it's absolutely necessary. I think it reflects what's going on for me. Uh, I think I've there's areas like attractors that I come back to in terms of what I've been trying to add into the discussion. Yeah, uh, you know, Bruce and I do a lot of work on post-metaphysical metaphysics. Yep, that led me to what I call the metaphysics of adjacency, an attempt to clarify the underlying principles that pluralism, integrative pluralism, and non-duality would all require. Um, I've ended up sort of standing for this integration surplus model of religion and spirituality that mm. I talk about a lot, uh, and that's the idea that. You could certainly think of, and I've lived in communities where the assumption is there's a primordial given spirit quality that you have to relate to. Mm -hmm. That's that's a possibility, but it's not a necessity. You can get the mm -hmm. whole effect through some kind of, um, like a, the, imagine a syntactical node where all of the subjective subsystems come together, cross-pollinate, harmonize, and feed back their excess, and then you have a relationship to that, and then the social animal- Isn't that just the way it works? <laughs> Yeah, exactly, right? That's, I mean, you know, it's like, what are you saying? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm saying, like, straight up describing what's happening. It shouldn't come across as a weird theory, but it does. Well, that does not come across weird to me. That's like, okay, this is what our journey is about. <laughs> so, uh, actually, the, the, uh, yeah. you know, the social, the interpersonal analog of that is bringing together, like, classes and genres and elements of the culture. And that's where it gets real close to the you talk, right? Because oh. I think the, the the formal intellectual part, the theology of the new religion has got to be some kind of super coherent merging of our epistemologies that creates that same kind of surplus feedback loop and gives us a sense of the, the holiness, the apotheosis of our cultural endeavor. Totally. That's you talking with Greg. <laughs> 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 so so I'm, I'm super interested in i'm really glad you touched on because i was definitely going to i hope we would get adjacent to it and then fall into it i want to hear about the adjacency uh, of metaphysics I, I heard you and bruce describe that and by the way it's so cool because when i talk with bruce it's just like oh my god he knows all this stuff too <laughs> it's like why do some people know this already so that's really cool um but yeah i i heard you and bruce talk about it you know i think um how much his grammatology 
was really interesting uh, to me and really foundational. His prepositional um, framing was actually super congruent with some of the stuff I was intersecting with John Verbeke. Then I heard the adjacency, the metaphysics of adjacency, and uh, that actually stopped on that moment and really took a moment to really try to metabolize that. So it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, yeah, so I'd love to hear some more detail for uh, the listeners here as to what that set of you know, sure. insights is about. Well, so I'm hanging out in these communities, um, post-metaphysical spirituality on the one hand and integrative and developmental communities on the other. And I'm trying to think, what what is the minimum set of metaphysics necessary for these worlds to be accurate, right? Mm -hmm. If pluralism is true, if integral pluralism is true, if non-duality is true, if post-metaphysics makes sense, what's the underlying metaphysics that justifies all of that? What are the preconditions for thinking any of those things? And so when I pictured initially, I'm picturing the plurality of perspectives or contexts, right? That you can relativistically- It's a beautiful switch. setup, by the way. It's a beautiful <laughs> setup. So thank you. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, the first thing is pluralism is a, a set of contexts or perspectives that could, that we can say, oh, we have a different perspective or they have a different perspective or I switched my perspective. So implicit in the underlying assumption of pluralism it are these boundaries or these negotiation points where you can transfer between or distinguish between perspectives. So I'm like, okay, that's the implicit context of relativism, pluralism, contextualism. And then I go, oh, that's actually the same implicit assumption in integrative pluralistic models. Right. If you just imagine the simple Ken Wilber quadrants, totally. What are those? What are those lines on the quadrants? How do they? Right. The, this this model assumes some kind of intersectional right. relationship between these sets of perspective totally. lines. And then you start going, okay, you could go even further with this, like non-duality. You go, well, that's that the way that's different than monism, right? Everything is one. That's not non-duality. Non-duality is saying everything is both one and not one. It's, mm. it's not two. That's different than one. It's yes. simultaneously the same and different. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that's a really, that's a really tight packing of these contexts. It brings them really close together. Mm. You know, the quadrants brings them pretty close together. Mm -hmm. The pluralism has them, but they're a little further apart. I'm like, yep. so there's an underlying assumption of realms being next to each other you know, in a really simplistic way. Yeah. And so I started thinking proximity started thinking adjacency. I guess already I'd, I'd done a lot of thinking about what I call threshold cosmology, about things emerging at the intersections, about uh, you know life at the beach, not in the ocean or on the water. Or when we would do this in Tai Chi class, right? It's like, my hands are too far apart, nothing. If they're here, nothing. But when they're here, oh, that's something, right? right? And that's the same as field effects in physics. Where you go, hey, it's, it's just saying, oh my it, god, yeah, uh, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't come to life until they get close to each other. I so mean, I, like, I, what I, is this? What is the oh concept of close to? Because totally. close to seems like really significant in all these domains. And then if I elaborated close to our adjacency as a fundamental principle, what would the universe then look like metaphysically? That is, that is, that is so okay. So here, talk about sync. We were talking about sync last time. So I was like, as I'm. First off, I'm, you know, I will circle into quantum mechanic, general relativity, relativistic field theory. And um, the, the one that I was just paralleling was, all right, how do I drop particles and forces into fields? And what is the relationship? And so I have this thing called behavior. All right. So there's objects, there's fields, and there's change that an observer's engaged in. And this actually, I argue, is the fundamental conceptual grammar. 
But then you have to then differentiate. And what happens with the quantum field is that these particles and forces then dissipate into the surrounding field. And it is exactly the principle of adjacency of when and the entanglement and the splitting, but the unity between those kinds of domains that is precisely the sort of the metaphysical curiosity that drives people insane. And when you bring a metaphysical adjacency, you immediately have a particular container for that. That's, that's really, really beautiful. Yeah, it was very personal for me because it seemed to be a necessary element of the description of all the things I was really passionate about. Like it came up all the time in my analysis of these different philosophies on this sort of gradient. Obviously it comes up a lot in interpersonal relationships, right? Like intimacy is a condition of intensified closeness. When, when you say to your lover that you want to be one with them, you don't actually want to cancel the difference and have your kidneys located where their kidneys are. You mean you want to be functionally closer <laughs> so you're like, okay, so when yeah. you've been saying oneness, we, that was actually shorthand for closer. All right. And then it's working. I've always been fascinated by leading edge physics. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's showing up in a lot of areas of physics. It definitely is. And it's also showing up in my meditation practice, which is a huge part of my life, right? right? Where I would see things like, you know, this was my phrase for it a few years ago. The separator is the connector. Mm. my summation of non-duality is the thing that looks like it's dividing is actually part of the unifying you don't cancel it and say get rid of the separation here's the unity you know the thing that looked like the separation is actually the form of the unity like oh okay <laughs> now there's no sides which was a big part of my i mean i was i'm a big zen koan guy so that okay. you realize the categories you were using to try to understand the problem actually aren't the different categories yeah uh, where they identify each other and so you've got no other move totally. trapped there and then your mind explodes that's the most beautiful thing but it involves some super intense next to ness <laughs> that's really brilliant now i'm sure you know you know like here's who's coming to mind right now it's roy bashkar that's also in my mind because i'm working out some of the his critical realism into dialectical critical realism now there's a your analysis right there the immediacy of oh there's the presence and then there's the absence and then wait a minute, how does absence relate to presence? Well, that would be an adjacency, right? Right. And then the way he moves around into meta reality, that would be an adjacency between what his grounding was and his waking up to spiritual. So, I mean, you can just, yeah, this separation connector is the linkage across so many different domains in the way in which things are, that's, that's really, yeah, really. Absolutely. And, um, you know, the relationship between the critical realists and the integral community, that was when I got involved, that was the going thing, right? right. Everybody was, how do we put Baskar and Wilbur together? And that was sort of one of the genesis points of a meta integral expansion. Right. that has been going on for years now. Right. Right. And your, I mean, that, are you, when you look at that, uh, do you then bring particular other lenses that are particularly active in that kind of synthesis? I'd be very interested to get your take on the critical realist in a crit, critical realist integral theory, you know, merger, wherever you, um, you know, where you're positioned in relationship to that. Yeah, I wrote a paper about it that was in the integral review some years ago. I had some mm -hmm. bunch of diagrams uh, trying to uh, because there was an unresolved dispute uh, around correlationism, right? Because okay. the Wilburian assumption is tetra rising, which is nothing really, a phenomenon doesn't really stabilize and can't really be thought unless it has these subjective, objective, singular, and plural components. Uh, but the 
advanced philosophers of science like Baskar, as well as the uh, uh, new ontology guys, the new object <laughs> ontology guys. Speculative realists and all that. We're yeah. not giving, you're not giving the thing enough mm -hmm. dignity on its own, right? right? The whole point of science is you, you are getting closer to mapping a real thing that's not dependent yep. upon being known by some knower. Yep. Now, Wilbur is saying, hey, you can really expand the definition of a knower in a way where that's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Although that might become a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was, I was looking at that discussion and I thought, this is not a, an integral, we go objective and subjective quadrants. Or do they have independent status or do they always co-arise? And I'm like, this is not a quadrants problem. It's not an inside outside experience problem. Because if you think about what a thing really is, that we're going to know scientifically. Um, what is that thing apart from our interpretive lenses, our tools, our maps? It's something. We can say it's something, but that something becomes vanishingly small the more we remove the lenses, right? If I have a physical interaction, that only kind of works if I'm also a physical being. I've got eyes, I've got a map, I've got something. There's relational dynamics involved in my detection. And if I start taking out those dynamics, uh, I'm whittling down what the thing itself could be as an ontological ontic phenomenon right and so then i thought okay an actual ontic phenomenon can fall outside of subject object if it's infinitesimal mm. right i think maybe oh leibniz was thinking this way in order to yeah. say what's really real it can be a real thing it can be a distinct functional thing that recesses infinitely toward a vanishing point that it never reaches and so it's never nothing I'm like, okay. So then I'm like, ah, that's what we in integral theory have actually been calling the causal realm. Right? Oh. We've been thinking of it simplistically because the states are defined simplistically according to a sort of mystical idea of the states. Right. But I thought, okay, you were talking about a, a transparent, infinitesimal, eternal, essential quality. That's no different than what the Hindus were talking about when they described the self. Right, the sort of infinitely regressing, transparent, syntactical element of reality that you can't do without. Like, mm -hmm. all right, so there's maybe we should be thinking of these things in terms of states or realms of consciousness and not in terms of the inside-outside dynamic. Okay. okay. Um, and then I thought, how does that apply to Bhaskar? Like, well, mm -hmm. I thought, oh, well, maybe Bhaskar's actual condition yep. uh, is a combination of these states coming together. Okay. And, and you go, okay, that's great. And then you could have a higher version. You can have meta realities emerging and you can have demi realities, which are uh, regressive or perceived from the level of actuality that we're at. They're now a failure to achieve that level mm. because, you know, not to just ramble. Here. <laughs> no, no, actually, this is, I mean, at least for me, this is a mm -hmm. pathology and primitivism. I, I wrestled for a long time with that because, like, when is something a regressive pathological version of itself? And when is it just simpler? Yes. Right. And in a model, like a model of hierarchical complexity makes that hard to figure out initially. Yeah. Unless you really think, okay, it is, it's relative. Mm -hmm. Regression is pathological relative to the state you're at or want to be at, at the level of structure you want to mm -hmm. be at. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're in a modern society like um, industrializing Germany mm -hmm. and that society rolls back to something that looks conformist, dogmatic, hierophantic, theocratic, mm. right? Mm -hmm. centric mm -hmm. Oh, that's, that's evil. That's, that's, that's a problem. Yep. It's a problem relative to wanting them to be modern. 
It's not, but if you had an ancient society, that's not necessarily a problem, right? Mm. Minerals are not a problem, but if you want to turn me into minerals, you're murdering me. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to make a a developmental relativistic assessment, but that allows you to say that pathology and primitivism are in that sense, the same thing. So that's what I see Bhaskar's demi-reality coming in is like uh, the elements of a given actuality that cancel each other out and sort of roll back toward a more primitive version of themselves, which we don't well, want to happen. Yeah, that's okay. Um, God, that shot up lots of different potential <laughs> questions. I, I'm going to back up in one question that, that, you know, now I got my default mode network activating all various <laughs> different possible. So I'll see if I can parallel this thing. Okay, so in terms of, here's a question that I've wrestled with in relationship to um, transcendental realism. Okay. So my thought experiment on transcendental realism is, well, have we achieved a description of the universe? Okay. That is relative, you know, how independent is it of our being? Okay. And at some level, our comprehension has to be grounded in our phenomenology, but it's also the case as we were just talking about the uh, intellectual understanding of much of the universe is really very far away from our phenomenology. I mean, we have to try to make sense out of quantum mechanics, but actually we're making sense out of it in a way that space and time and size and all that shit is stuff we really can't relate to, but we have some knowledge of it, okay? So here's my uh, thought experiment as to how much there's an entanglement with our epistemology and ontology and the ontic reality. And that is, I'd be interested to see if you've thought about this or you have an opinion about this. If we were to come across another intelligent species, okay, who had the technology for space travel and all that other stuff, um, would their model of the universe include like the atomic uh, theory of matter? And would they basically have that frame of reference? Or would they be manipulating the universe in a particular way that we would not be able to understand and they wouldn't really recognize our uh, frame of reference? Um, And if, if if it's the latter case, then I think the argument really is you have a phenomenological grounding that re- all of our understanding is humanistically, you know, kind of in a Kantian sense. If they have a quantum atomic, you know, general relative Big Bang theory of the universe, then you get a transcendental realist ontology that our science has achieved. Um, I don't know if you have an opinion about that, but as you were talking about ontology, epistemology, this is uh, my science side has has wondered deeply about this, and this is one of the points of, of curiosity or thought experiments that I've landed on to try to see where I am uh, in terms of my ontic ontology, epistemology, etc. My guess at the moment is something like um, the majority of the computational patterns in the universe are nonlinear and irreducibly complex as far as we're concerned, and probably as far as any other system is concerned, right? This is a sort of Stephen Wolfram argument. I'm not sure how familiar you are with that stuff. Yeah, I'm in. He would say, hey, the vast majority of patterns we're going to encounter are in fact things that a computer could run much faster than us, but we have no way to shortcut that into knowledge, right? There's only some things that we can shortcut into knowledge. But you can see how those knowledge shortcuts emerge out of these sets. You're like, if I run this computation 100 billion times, this is this little bit of it here. That's all the rules of logic. Okay, interesting. So if you had another species Mm -hmm. who was able to use that instinctively, then there's a good chance we wouldn't understand them. But if they use that through machinery, if they had to run computations to handle it because they, like us, are insufficiently complex to map all the other of the world... 
Yeah. And they would, they would see those sub patterns emerging in places out of those. They might've chosen different ones to favor, but right. they would have a framework and a machinery that would allow them to go, Oh, they chose those ones. We chose these ones. It all fits into the same computation, even though we can't get on top of that computation. Love that answer. Love it. And that's uh, yep. That's exactly. Um, because they're right. So for, I mean, my head, I was like, we still don't know what dark matter is. What if they're connecting to dark energy, dark matter, in a macroscopic intuitive way, like they're a cloud of something and dark energy, dark matter, but then process information in ways that are so alien and then we wouldn't, but they would have access. But I love it if they do engage in a required computational reducibility. And then the question is, well, are these, you know, have our scientific process, you can certainly argue that there are these points of computational irreducibility. And if you have to break the system up, that, they, that there would be a subset of those and that a system that was capable of doing that computational reducibility would see and align. I love that answer. Yeah. Now, I think if they if they knew what they were doing, right? Like mm. they could have just been born as savants or something and have no <laughs> idea. If they knew what they were doing, they would have to be thinking in terms of sets of these yep. things, right? Of different yep. ways it could have gone. And we're doing that with, I mean, even string theory, which is dubious at best, it's still it's got it's a set taken of some hits. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's got a set of solutions, uh, right? That's how we need to be thinking. And I assume that's how they would be thinking, is they would see that there were multiple ways to go at it. Right. And that's part of when I think in general about meta theories, right? You know, okay, here's how, like when we think about Wilbur, one of the difficult things for people initially getting their hands on the integral theory is they conflate the things he's talking about with the way he packaged them. Mm. Right. And I'm like, okay, he, you can tease those apart and say, these are the components that he thinks would need to be included in a vision logic map of reality. Mm -hmm. He's packaged them like this, but you can unpack them and package them in different ways. And what would be the total set of those ways? Uh, I don't know how to think about that, but here's what I could do. I say, here's a one variable model. Here's a two variable model. And by variable, I mean the sets of perspectives. Yep. Think, yep. Three, four, five. At some point it becomes too many for you to use for any practical purpose. And at some point it's too simple for you to use. So you're looking for a Verveke optimal grip there. Sure. But we need to think of the space of the total set of um, meta-perspectival solutions. Um, and then we're in a situation where we could have real meaningful exchange with anybody who's in that set, even if they chose different variables. I love it. And in fact, that, you know, that set framing, that, that the math science relation from a logos perspective is that, you know, math's going to create your logical set theory and then the deductive elements. And then that becomes a particular kind of frame for whatever subsets of, you know, uh, that operate inside of that. So that's a, exactly the kind of architecture uh, that I would see. So, damn. <laughs> All right. So, uh, is there a god? <laughs> it's this. <laughs> Don't. Um, all right. So, in terms, I'm. I'm. Is do we cover pretty much the? Uh, is there more definitively to say to get the full package of the metaphysics of the adjacency? Or I mean, that's a brilliant description. Yeah. It's, I mean, it can be unpacked in a lot of ways. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, Bruce and I got unpack it in a few more ways to put this yep. book together. One of the things we came together on is, I mean, Wilbur has this notion of using pronouns and some of the underlying universal language structures that you find yep. in all the cultures to say, oh, these are ways that we evolved to recognize the basic types of perspectival interactions with reality. Right. So you can go a level lower than that and turn that into prepositions, which Bruce and I saw were both doing that because okay. I, had re I had rephrased the four quadrants as, uh, looking at, looking from, looking with, and looking via. 
And Bruce was like, oh, hey, I've done this whole thing on prepositions. And I'm like, hey, you know what's about prepositions is they are an orientation toward, which is an adjacency. Yep. <laughs> and so then we thought, oh, maybe prepositions are the periodic table of adjacency. We should work yeah. on it at some point. And so now we're trying to start doing that. <laughs> oh, what a brilliant uh, framing that is. Yes. Absolutely. So that, that's one component. Another component I would say is um, it, it brings the almost into its full dignity. Mm. So that we can, we've normally, we've historically thought about something and nothing and these sort of totalized distinctions. And the postmodernists have really critiqued that. And I think we can take that critique really seriously without losing any of the power of the previous models. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if a guy like Descartes says, I think therefore I am, or one plus one equals two, and then they're like, how do you know that's really one and that those are really the same two things? You go, well, you don't. You don't don't 100% know it. You just know it is as much that, it's more that than anything else. Right. This isn't 100% true. It's just as true as we can get, but that's Mm. the limit of truth. So that's as true as it can get. And it justifies the feeling of 100%ness, even though in reality, it's 99.99999. So you can take off the totalizations as long as you don't then just feel like you're in a universe of mystery and no meaning and no confidence. Because the confidence people previously got from what they called 100% truth, Uh that was a confidence they were not getting from 100% if it never existed. (laughs) They were getting it from 99%. (laughs) They were getting it straight from the 99. So then I would tell people 99 is the new 100%. <laughs> yes, I think I heard that line. I love that line. <laughs> well, yes, I think it, yeah, go ahead. I'll, when did this uh, When did this begin to really percolate for you? Last decade or so has this been, or longer than that? E, well, I mean, I, I was probably thinking in terms of generative thresholds mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Okay. Um, just as a way of explaining mostly my relational and uh, mystical practices. Right, right, right. But the the adjacency idea came to me very distinctly by walking by a lake one day, and that was maybe 2014, 2015, okay. right. something in that territory. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So it's really percolated into clarity of consciousness of being like, these are concepts, and now I start to really see yeah. the differentiating, looping, function of this metaphysics and then start to explode with and then you hook up with with bruce and his prepositional knowing uh which i totally because i think we talked a little bit about this but john and i were syncing up around adverbial and adjectival consciousness in our world not exploration and then we landed on um and we were trying to sort out and i was like well there's something feels like there's something beneath it from especially from and he's like yes and then we got into this valence qualia which are really basically pleasure and pain, which is move toward, move away, you know? And then really, as I write about it, there's a prepositional um, uh, way of thinking that very, very enlivens that. And then I also would say there's an adjacency then, especially if the, now the connection between prepositions giving us sort of a taxonomy of, uh, you know, of adjacency. I, that's just a, a brilliant network. And is that sort of the structure of the book? Is that sort of the, the central theme of the book? Yeah, well, we're going to try to go into all these areas because, you know, it's we're, we're thinking now about what we want it to be and okay. you know, what kind of style we want it to have. But we want to we really flesh out the prepositional. We want to flesh out the relationship to the different dimensions. We want to flesh out this argument about what kind of metaphysics would be needed to justify post-metaphysics and also integrative pluralism. But also we want to say, like, what are the 
what are the consequences for personal practice? What are what kind mm-hmm. of dimensions could uh, come to pass from this? Mm-hmm. And then also look at who else has been thinking like this? What's the lineage of this thought? What communities it pertain to? What sort of problems could it solve? So we want to range very broadly in exploring yeah. this. Um, um, yeah, to, yeah. Can, I, I have a, that's another question. Uh, the post-metaphysics, um, uh, in terms of, what's the, is there a shorthand operating frame? I mean, I get it in, in some lays of sort of the evolution, um, but I'd be curious as to see, like if you're writing it out, how, how do you frame post-metaphysics? I know Wilbur certainly uh, frames it, and that's the primary author that I know in terms of coining the term, but I may be, uh, there may be well be others. I'm not really sure, so I'm curious. Sure, I, I'd frame it in, uh, I think there's, I mean, the, the simplest thing within higher discourse communities is usually just saying that you can have these experiences without necessarily buying into the ontology that's presupposed by them, right? right. And that's part of the Wilbur Combs matrix, which is really important in getting beyond the idea that higher states are the higher stages of development, which is, a, totally. you know, we got to remix that in order to understand yep. those variables. Absolutely. But the idea is... Uh, Jesus doesn't have to be real for him to show up in your life and have a transformative effect, right? Sure. You don't have to agree with everything in the Vedas in order for yoga to work. Beautiful. It's formative, it's practical. So you can do it without the metaphysics. Mm-hmm. So that's, for most people, that's the simplest form. Okay. But there's a more elaborate take, right? If there's a developmental progression of stages of maturation in culture or ourselves, then at each stage, it has a reflection on the ontological assumptions of the previous stage. Mm. And it says, hey, some of what you took to be ontic was bogus. <laughs> so <laughs> don't, don't. we're going to whittle that down. We are post-metaphysical relative to what you metaphysically assumed. And that goes on stage by stage. So I think that's in a developmental sense, every stage is post-metaphysical relativistically. But then you get up to pluralistic and pluralistic takes the modern critique which science brought against dogma and assumption, and it really deploys it in all directions in a more nuanced way, is how do you know anything? Mm. So in that sense, post-metaphysics is the kind of metaphysics you have if you're a postmodernist or a pluralist, okay. right. assuming you're an actual one and not just a, a woke reactionary or something like that. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of work on meta-progressive politics as well, so I've got mm. trying to nuance all those things. And then the question is, um, if you take that seriously, if you don't say if, uh, one way to say, hey, we're just going to jump past that and we're going to return to a, a mystical universalism, that yes, we appreciate the multiplicity of interpretations, but ultimately underneath, because I've personally experienced it, there is this one or there is you know, whatever. So sure. that's one way. And a lot of people in the integral community have made that. And I think it's a hasty move. Mm-hmm. I think it doesn't really appreciate what the pluralists have trying to been bringing in as a critical awareness. I think if you take that seriously, then you have to say, how do I explain the ontological structure of these valid experiences in a way that maximizes their fidelity to previous perceptions of those, mm-hmm. but doesn't commit to the totality of the ontological identity of these things. And then that's where it gets metaphysics of adjacency. Because um, you're right up against an edge. Is there a God? Well, sort of, almost, and nearly, you're kind of, right? And you go, okay, if you take that move as a serious part of the ontological structure, then you can say, ah, we can have a viable, coherent post-metaphysical mode of metaphysics that gains rather than loses the certainty 
Wow. Um, so that's, that's how I beautiful. Um, yeah. So this is, and this actually, um, okay. So now I'd like to position that in relationship to like the tree of knowledge and you talk for a second. Sure. Okay. So, so the tree of knowledge basically is trying to create, and actually I told you I had to get this line in. I'm going to get this line in here. All right. So we're, I'm after, I'm in search of a coherent naturalistic ontology that revitalizes the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. And what you just said is just, oh, my soul and spirit is feeling revitalized. Okay. So, and, and it speaks very much to my own past. So I get raised, my, um, you know, I get raised in a Dawkins-esque kind of atheist and modernist empirical scientific thing. So that at 20, science is the most advanced thing that I've got going, right? Okay. And I'm learning empirical psychology, which I realized later is completely corrupt. <laughs> well, not completely, but it's mostly corrupt at the conceptual level. And then I grow, you know, and I'm learning and blah, blah, blah. And I learn all about the material, you know, from a Wilbur view, the materialistic flatland um, and people thinking of themselves as just mechanical, chemical, you know, bundles and, and all of that. And, and so what, what I'm, I'm then building this sort of like, well, naturalism has it, there's a particular coherence to a substance monist emergent evolutionary view. There's a, there's a non-dual continuity that has to be part of a grounded scientific ontology if it's gonna have any coherence at all, okay? Um, and it, to me, it has to actually bridge if, it, you know, A, it's gotta have some coherence and we should pay attention to the, both the impact and the connection with our subjective experience of B, who would have thunk it, okay? Um, and I can now place the errors that the that modern science makes in its move from matter and motion into life and it then wobbles and then it hits mine and then it breaks up completely in terms of its capacity, the narrow empiricist view. So then tree of knowledge comes along and the tree of knowledge says, hey, here's a scientific ontology, okay, that's up to the task of a scientific psychology because it then tells you what the domain scientifically of the mental is, where it allows you to find mental with integrity as behavior, animal behavior, and open up what the subject of experience of being would be, and then ultimately get into justifying humans and voila, okay? So now with that, now we can actually box in scientific ontology. But as I box in scientific ontology, it also then creates this edge of what I would call of, of agnosticism, Okay, so then it was like, I don't know if they're aliens. <laughs> you know, I don't know if there's this mystical experience that actually has an ontological spiritual dimension. I don't know about all this parapsychological stuff. Um, and I certainly don't know there's no God. That would be foolish. Okay, so then what happens to me is I then shift from my sort of arrogant, naive atheism into I'm atheistic relative to the concrete interpretations of, you know, simplistic regressive gods but then I'm agnostic relative to what the edge of this naturalistic ontology is, okay? So now you get an adjacency there. You're like, oh, well, there's an adjacency out here that I wanna be relating to. And then what emerges, and this is through Alexander Bard in particular and a few other things that I was in, and I was like, well, I don't necessarily believe in the metaphysical claims of a concrete God, but I sure as hell believe in the concept of God, okay? I sure as hell believe as if there is a God that places an enormous, a consequence. I mean, look at the entire Middle Ages and, and what Christianity dominated everything that everyone did. So the concept of God plays a huge role and it plays a huge role in the meaning making systems. And I certainly then believe in the concept of God. Okay. 
So now you're in the in the concept of God, and I'm just saying all the stuff that you already know, but I'm just telling my own limited development along this particular spiritual angle <laughs> and, and how it so obviously parallels these particular kinds of insights. And so now you get into what I would call, you know, where Bard labels or other people have labeled, synthism, which is this idea that you transcend an atheism and, and, uh, and you know, a theism and then create a God. You know, it's the, it's the creation, the liminal space of what your possibility is. This actually activates into John Verveke's recursive relevance realization and, and a huge number of kinds of things. And ultimately, then, it's a framework, as far as I'm concerned, that then bridges a naturalistic ontology with a humanistic way of being and bridges this, you know, naturalism into soul and spirit in a very, very, um, well, uplifting way. <laughs> Lovely. So, God, so many places to go with that. Um, I think one of the things I'll touch on a little bit is, uh, you know, I did some of this work with Bruce, which was thinking about what religion means in an integral sense. Mm. Because the standard definition of religion is normally we think of these large uh, belief cults, mythic mm. membership cults, where people agree about a legendary cosmology. They verbally profess it. And they think it's important to then use that to instruct children in police society. Mm. Okay. Um, but in the integral model and in a lot of developmental models, that's a specific stage of social and cognitive complexity, right? right. That's Gipster's mythic membership. That's concrete operational cognition. They yeah. do everything that way, right? Mythic membership identification and uh, pre-rational ideation and verbal professing and belief orientation and symbolic efficacy. That's how those people do everything. So that's not the definition of religion. That's how religion <laughs> looks to them because that's how they do everything. Now, modernists have looked at like, okay, if that's the definition of religion, we're not religious then. I'm like, well, you're still using their definition. You think they're idiots. Don't use their definition. <laughs> so what's a definition of religion that applies at all the stages and right. doesn't require the content of anyone to be correct? So then you have to look at it as some sort of functional phenomenon right. whereby people are socially getting together in a way that gives them access to a numinous experience, which allows them to characteristically identify themselves and motivate themselves in a certain way. That's mm. probably really useful for them. When you look at the foundational dynamics of religion, you always see something like that. It's always a bit like a Renaissance, a whole bunch of parts of reality come together in a new way of living and people experience themselves in like apotheosis. We see ourselves as holy. We experience it as that. And when we look at the challenges faced today, we know a lot of things that would solve a lot of our problems, but we can't mobilize to do it. And maybe that's because we're missing that extra quality that that coherent integration would give us. It has to feel sacred enough to mobilize us collectively. Let's just be with that for a second. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, um, I, I mean, uh, that reformulation or, or revitalization of an obvious old formulation, however we want to think about it. To me, when we think about the, the moves that need to be made in our systems of justification and then what opens up our potential, I mean, that's a beautiful description and certainly resonates really with my own awakening over a 15-year period about what this thing is. Um, and I also was having uh, the old funny conversations I used to have in my head when I would look at the well, I'm now back empirical psychology world, and you look at the well-being literature, and the well-being literature and religiosity is crystal clear, 
you know, the particular kinds of investment in religiosity is repeatedly and consistently demonstrably, you know, associated with positive well-being. And you have the people trying to deconstruct, well, why and what is it? And, and I was like, actually, just watch what Lehman said right there. <laughs> <laughs> and in that little paragraph, as an obvious explanation for what is so unbelievably central. So then, is a, then how do we bootstrap our both our understanding and this potential in a particular way? So anyway, that was just a brilliant articulation. As far as I'm yeah, I think the um, I mean, the work you've been doing and then other people have also been doing the similar work of trying to what is a coherent map that fits together all the functional elements that we have for making sense of the universe brings our epistemologies together. And then hopefully that's a pretty good correlation to whatever the ontology is. Um, that's the, the necessary precondition for a theology that would go with a kind of religiousness that would suit the contemporary moment. Right. I, I think one of the things that gets missed and it's a beautiful thing from David Deutsch. I know you quoted him mm -hmm. in something I read recently. Mm -hmm. I love his stuff. Mm -hmm. And his explanation of why explanations have gotten better, he makes a point that there was science, there was hypothesis, there was checking in the ancient yeah. world, right? So they had that. Um, but where was I going with this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I like David Deutsch and his explanation hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, right. Here's the point is... Um, in the religiosity of the ancient world, that religiosity included the science that they understood, right? Just like the way the medieval church included Aristotelian thought, right? Science and religion have never been apart. Religion always enfolds science the way it enfolds the arts, the way it enfolds politics, the way it enfolds right. violence, the way it enfolds diet, everything, right? So religion only exists in the contemporary world if it enfolds contemporary science. Otherwise, mm. it's the religion of a previous phase, which right. is regressive relative to what we need. <sighs> right, exactly. And that's and, and in fact, actually now, um, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely just metabolizing. So I'm slowing down a little bit because I can feel the, there's a shift in my gut, a beautiful shift in my gut. So I get called to call this thing the tree of knowledge. And then I turn it into this crazy sincere ironic garden behind me right i mean what the fuck is that right you know and actually what it is is exactly now that i'm i'm, I'm feeling this to be unfolded in a particular way what it is is exactly is we need the bridge we need a naturalistic scientific ontology that can then be held in a particular way that then turns around to a new version of religiosity that can be enfolded in and then utilize that to create a generative enclosure for the eminent emergence of the next phase. Yeah, let me throw one other weird element in here because when you talk about a, a naturalistic coherent ontology, mm -hmm. uh, it makes me think of when I first started having talks with John Verveke a year or mm -hmm. two ago, mm -hmm. uh, I was giving public talks on what I called sacred naturalism or sacred uh -huh. naturalism, right? And so that has two parts. That was a naturalistic conception of the sacred, but also a sacralization of naturalness. And I thought about that a lot in terms of um, a higher degree of parity in the mapping between human and nature systems, right? So that the more sociology, psychology, information processing, the more our 
uh, civic layouts, the more our mental architecture resembles the actual patterns nature is using, the more correspondence is there. And this creates an experiential naturalness, which is not something of nature. It's something between nature and human beings. Yep. But we allow ourselves that semi-arbitrary right. distinction. Yep. So that this, the greater parity between human mapping and nature's patterns would create a, a naturalistic feeling that we should and could treat as a sacred phenomenon while we're building a naturalistic version of what sacredness means. I haven't heard that formulation exactly. I, of course, know John has uh, been kicking around the search for the sacred in, in this you know, uh, new axial age. Uh, that's a beautiful formulation um, and absolutely central. Uh, so, uh, and this gets, you know, if we put this, we can then drop this into uh, the basic tree of knowledge ontology. So as I, as I told you before, but then we can now really hone in on what you're saying in terms of what my own realization was. So the tree of knowledge obviously goes matter, life, mind, culture, and then life, mind, and culture are these information processing communication networks that give rise to when we're speaking just scientifically or whatever, descriptively, there's a complex adaptive systems mediated by information processing communication networks at the genetic cell, neuro, animal, and then linguistic. And then, but our, our technologies get increasingly enfolded in over the last 10,000 years. We're engaging with them in particular ways. And this becomes then society. The tree of knowledge doesn't really capture society in a particular way. It's basically, well, it's, it's culture and material culture interacting and then create these, uh, you know, uh, assemblages of groupings and what's the real unified theory of a society and all this other stuff. And that's always been one of my questions. And it's also then pointed to the idea that, well, the material culture, culture relation is going to fundamentally change because of what gets laid down in the 20th century in terms of the information processing digital. Okay, so the information processing, the Internet, our inf AI and our information interfaces like an iPhone, okay, are completely then changing the relation of the resonant frequencies now that are then going to blend us into techno, you know, techno chaos, potentially. Okay, so how the hell do we actually manage the techno virtual potential that this adjacent possible space is going to open up and it's going to create a huge amount of potential and a huge amount of chaos simultaneously? We need to have wisdom grounding. In fact, John Verbakian, like 2014, he's got a neuro enlightenment talk where he talks about there's wisdom and there's technology. And it, at some level, we're going to have to create the proper balance. Well, how the hell do we create the proper balance? Well, what is wisdom? Lots of different elements. But what you just said orients then towards a particular brilliant framing of what this wisdom would be. And that is there's a natural resonance that we need to stay grounded on. And to the extent that we elevate that grounding, resonant grounding as sacred and attend to it, it is that would through the fifth joint point that becomes the resonant grounding upon which the digital virtual can be at least referenced against. So we're going to spin out of insanity. Yeah, I think if we bring together an attempt to make a naturalistic map of how people organize reality up to the point of sacredness, and we at the same time we encourage our ability to feel uh, the sacredness of that naturalness, and we have to think about what are the patterns that lead to that experience, that kind of patterning, right? right? And how, hypothetically, ideally, hopefully, those things are converging. If we do yes. them in a bunch of different domains, they create a 
naturalistic, better society, where the experience of using technology feels more naturalistic, where we go into flow states more, right? Where, I mean, it means a lot of different things. More trees in the city. Great. That's it, right? Or I go out and hug a tree. Now, my internal experiential map has more of that tree in me. So I'm picking up these complex natural system patterns. It can also mean just more science, right? Because the more we see of the actual structure of the universe, the more that's a potential. And if you compare contemporary science to the science of 1900, it's way more rich, way more complex, way more organic, much more vivid, less mechanical. So we're moving in a certain trajectory if we take that up. And then when it comes right down to some of the things you've been writing about, the co-mapping of epistemology and ontology is very much like this. If epistemology is the human set of patternings and ontology is what's really there in nature, the more our epistemological set looks like the actual divisions of nature, the more that resonance creates an effect which has a coherence and a naturalness that we can then count on and helps us build that kind of civilization. I mean, that's when I was, you know, in September or whatever, I dropped into, as you know, the wisdom energy. That's what we talked about with Steve McIntosh. I mean, that, what you just said, essentially is what my cells were resonating around. <laughs> you know, what you, I mean, I'm serious. That's a, you know, and then I lost, I really started to, in my flow state, I, which is rare for me because I'm so freaking, you know, egoically justifying, but I actually lost, you know, even that in terms of the, the depth of the metabolizing. And that's exactly what it was. It was the epistemological structures, the ontic reality, wavelength frequency around some fundamental sense of valued goodness, you know, through, through and through the hierarchy, uh, inside and out. And that was, um, yeah, fucking it. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> uh, another thing I'd throw into the mix is, for me, a lot of this stuff comes out of uh, an ongoing relationship with uh, Nietzsche's writings. Okay. You know, the things I think about Nietzsche are quite divergent from what I hear people say about Nietzsche. So it could be that I'm just seeing my own reflection when I read it. But nonetheless, uh, there's all these fascinating aspects, right? In his notebooks, he's not just talking about a relativity of value aspects. He's talking about how you would build a structure, uh, a, you know, a qualitative measurement of what would be better how you get morality out of immorality and then what would happen if you kept going in that direction okay. and how do how do basic empowerment structures like what we call energy build up to the kinds of values that we have now and how would we keep that going and what are the principles by which you could build a civilization around feelings of empowerment and peak experiences make them more intense and more distributed and when he says when he describes the formula of greatness amor fati to say of every it was that i willed it thus um, it's a kind of a psychological test, but it's a test about can you affirm and bring together all the things that are in your world space, right? Without necessarily having to assume that this was intended for me or there's an external force that said, hey, this was meant to happen. You don't need to believe something meant it to happen, but you do need to experience the quality of, oh, this was meant to happen. You need to get to that spot somehow. That's a, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, one of the areas of, of development that I would benefit from is, a, is another layer of appreciation of Nietzsche. So, and I hate that definitely hits me in my limited understanding of Nietzsche in a different way. So I, that's a wonderful and, and totally resonant 
articulation of the whole value problem. And, 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 and all of this keeps coming back with a very similar resonant frequency, right? I mean, there's a, there just is, there's, there's a real experience and narrative and interconnected community to be had here in this um, space. Yeah, and that's a, I mean, the, the idea of a gradient or a spectrum of value affect, right, which goes along with a kind of developmental model, it's something that's in Nietzsche, even though it's, he doesn't always bring it out because he doesn't want to come across systemically like Hegel. Right. <laughs> but it's yeah, also in Wilbur, right? If people want to critique mm -hmm. uh, integral theory as a kind of relativism, then they haven't quite understood because the idea is every truth is true but partial, but they're not all equally true. There's, there's a stack depending on how much they incorporate coherently within themselves, which is its value is dependent on how much value affect that it coordinated in that move. Right. And I think that's one of the things, because if you look at a pluralistic model, you can say there's just a ton of different values and perspectives out there. But if you rotate them all towards, say, the North Pole, if you look at what the positive end of their internal value gradient is, then you can start to align them. And I, I think of it metaphorically in the same sense that a, a magnetic material yep. uh, is a material in which all the tiny little atomic magnets are lined up in the same direction. And a non-magnetic material, it's nothing but atomic magnets and a non-magnetic material, they're just not aligned. Wow. So I think in order to get to that next stage, what we need is an alignment of a multiplicity of perspectives. And we do that by finding their positive negative value and then assuming that all their positive value, value affects coordinate into a higher value affect. Boom. Uh, so, you know, the, okay, so here I'll riff off of this. This, get, this gets into some of the stuff we covered, uh, but I certainly want to echo it here again because the resonance is striking. So when I'm backing up, you know, I, I enter into the natural ontology as a healer, as a psychotherapist, right? Uh, and, and so the first and foremost is people suffer and, and I'm centered on this concept of human well-being. You know, there, there's a, at some level, there's this gradient. You know, I'd always say, you know, whatever, when you doubt whether there's mean and thank God that our family's sitting around the Thanksgiving table and having gratitude and love and not on a goddamn train to Auschwitz. You know, I mean, we're, for our Jewish family, that's like, you know, the, the, the magnitude of that is heaven and hell on, you know, in the embodied experience and, and that what would be matter more or more real than that, um, you know, from a particular kind of perspective. And I've always been embodied uh, in the valuation perspective, all while also being trained in the scientific, you know, descriptive uh, frame of reference and na navigating that is all. But as the system that I was building around the science of psychology into psychotherapy, there was always this iterative process of is and all. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, but to be then guided by, a, as a psychotherapist, I needed both, all right, I wanted some sort of coherent human science of psychology that I could employ in the real now so that I could be an actual scientific psychologist that's a psychological doctor. But I also need to understand what are the value frames that inform me in relation to the work that I'm doing. And so then what I did was I was like, well, what are the, what are the systems of justification and what are the valuations that are coordinating them across the various multiplicity of different paradigms? So there, and then I wanna then extract very much like you said, it's like, well, I wanna go higher residency of the underlying value structures and essentially see then the polarities of good and evil that then pull out and then you back up, okay? 
in relationship to that meta. And then what that gave to me as I backed up in relationship, I gave it and it yielded what I call my ultimate justification, uh, which was be that which enhances dignity and well-being with integrity. Um, and those three values essentially emerge as I look at various spheres of justification. And one is a justice valuation that emerges in relationship to the United Declaration of Human Rights. So after World War II, after the biggest fucked up in the history, explicit, you know, <laughs> screw up of evil in the history of mankind, everyone all got together like, well, we have a pretty good example of what evil is, right? And we, what we don't want to do and what justice is. And then we have to justify justice. And then how do we justify justice? It's like, well, and ultimately it's kind of a tautology. Humans have dignity, which is essentially they have esteem, they have respect. And that is a foundational potential grounding. And then out of that legitimizes all sorts of justice-based implications in relationship to how societies relate across society. It's also the case when you look at well-being, if you look at the World Health Organization, well, it took some hits over COVID, but whatever, we have some idea about what would be multiplicity of, of organizations that then is concerned with health. What you get is a biopsychosocial well-being constellation. So well-being then becomes this sort of thing that health and happiness and functioning and we can get into specifics, but anyway, well-being becomes a particular value. And then ultimately you look at science and you look at learned scholarship and the fundamental and ideas about truth with honor and integrity and you get this integrity value. Um, so the well-being, dignity with integrity kind of frame of reference is essentially me taking those polarized values in different contexts of justification and seeing that this created that for me then this sort of meta tripartite holistic yeah. value structure that emerged that's very similar to exactly what you were delineating there. The, the way I think about it is, I mean, obviously gradients and adjacency have a lot in common, right? Because adjacency is a, a flexible, negotiable proximity, right? So then when I think about value or empowerment, I'm thinking about how close or how far away are we from it? Mm -hmm. It's sort of, mm -hmm. uh, it means you're never totally there and you're never totally apart from it you're always somewhere in that proximity space mm -hmm. in the same sense that you know negative 10 degrees on a thermometer that's still a measure of heat it's not a measure of cold so it's a positive <laughs> right. measure right. absolute zero we never quite get there <laughs> so this is this is nietzsche too nietzsche says um he who despises himself still honors himself as one who despises Nah. And what it means is that's a that's an aphoristic way of saying when you have a negative evaluation, there's still a positive valuation backing that up. You're still yeah, in yeah, connection man. with value. You're on the spectrum somehow. Right. And I, the way I say it is, if you find yourself facing south, you immediately know where the North Pole is located. Nah. Right. So you're, you're in that polarized field. Right, but right. it takes work to turn around, to remember Right. A lot of spiritual teachers, will, you, know, you, you can reconnect with your values in any moment, but you have to be available to do the effort to do that. Mm. Likewise, if you want to take any perspective that someone brings forward and say, hey, that actually fits into my super coherent map of reality. It does, but you're going to have to undergo some work that that person may not be willing to undertake. So my two responses to what you said are on the one hand. There's effort, there's an energy investment calculation. And on the other hand, there's something like a telos, right? There's a, a qualitative or patterning style telos that is the direction of the increase of the value. Uh, even though that's not going to be asserted by someone as, hey, here's what God said the future has to look like. Right. But we all say, based on the evaluation of every value and perspective, that an improvement of that, an intensification of that is going to look more like this. Mm. And I'm dedicated to that. 
God. <laughs> hey, God. <laughs> there we go. That's a, uh, yes, absolutely. And I love that process, the, the, the process delineation of that field and the work effort and the alignment of the vector. I mean, that, that very, and the, the magnetic resonance. I mean, that, um, that affords me a new adjacent angle on some of the, the, the framing and, uh, and does, so, does so brilliantly. All right, so I'm also having now a default mode network Thing that I wanted to make sure I checked in with you. Uh, okay. okay. Before we, uh, you know, so you said something like meta progressive, you have some notion about politics and we have to ask ourselves, you know, what are we doing in this macro space? What's happening? What, what do we hope can happen in relationship to the evolution? What's our active role? What's our observing role? So my curiosity then for you is as you look out at where we are at some notion, what are our notions about the the future? What are your thoughts about what, what types of signals are we sending? What kinds of conversations? What actions do we take? Anything along those lines in relationship to sort of the evolution, uh, sure. both any observations of it or energies that you have about what you're directing uh, in this regard? I, I would say that um, the kind of sociocognitive operating system that characterizes modernity or modern civilization uh, has done a lot of good things and is also entrenched and dominant. And yeah. it has a very complex structure that's apart from its rhetorical aspirational virtues. And it has worked. It's done a lot of neat things. But right now, it's compounding problems that it cannot solve. So a postmodern critique of some kind is necessary. We have to make a jump to that space, yep. which is you know, flexibly related to a progressive politics of some kind. We have to be able to really distinguish what are the postmodern insights and skills that we need to affirm and double down on, and what are the corrupt simulacra of those things. For so really? we have that distinction. And I'm doing all of this from what we'd call an integral perspective or a post-postmodern or a metamodern perspective. So that's the perspective where you can say, what kind of postmodernism do we need? What does it have to do in order to succeed? How can it be healthy or not healthy? And how should it be related to these other systems? So I think we need an increased, more potent critique of modernity and a set of minimum structural upgrades to at least stabilize us in the face of the multiple compounding accelerating crises. But in order to get that done, those people need to work much better with conservatives and they need to have a much better sense of their own internal left and right. All right, so the integral political map is there's these stages and they each have a polarization. So yep. the conventional notion of right is confusing because there's a right for every phase. There's also there's a right for traditionalists. There's a right for liberals. There's a right for progressives. And yep. there'll be a meta level left and right at some point if that gets established. Right. So you need the, first of all, progressives need to not identify with the left, but they also need to understand what they meant by the left is not the same as liberalism, but also in order to get anywhere with these policies, they're going to need a lot of conservative spirit. They're going to be able to need to speak to their own right wing and also to people who are, have traditional and modern virtues. So that's, Brilliant. you know, they have the basic sense of what we need to do. We need something like a Bernie Sanders upgrade. <laughs> Plan of what, right? Right, right, right. You're only going to get that if you've got uh, aggressive people on board, if you've got ruralists on board, that kind of stuff. If you've got Joe Rogan on board, you need all these other dimensions in order for it to be strong and viable. So it's got to 
unpack its traditional associations and clean itself up into what, what it really is versus the simulations of itself that come from both uh, dogmatic use of, which is the lower level use of these higher concepts, and also the machinery of what I would call centrist liberal modernism, it has a built-in self-defense mechanism. It's extremely complex, it's extremely metastable, it's extremely flexible, and it can use any forms or virtues to maintain its dominance. That's a, so that's, that's that's a, a challenge. That's yeah, where we need no, to go and how we need to handle it. In fact, <laughs> you know, this is very continuous with the conversation I was having with Leonie Rachel Anderson and uh, her metamodernity, which is a, is a frame on metamodernism. I like lots of frames on metamodernism. That's a particular one uh, because I do resonate with the idea that we can look at different phases of cultural code or sensibility through oral indigenous, through traditional uh, pre-modern formal to modern to postmodern, and recognize, uh, and Steve McIntosh does this also, uh, in, she elevates the um, oral indigenous, but recognize what each of these speak to in terms of say, our sacred naturalist world, <laughs> way of being in, with each other and in the world, and then the process by which we cultivate. The other thing that you said there that's very, very you know, keen, and, and I love the way you highlight it as well, well what's a simulation, what's a, what's a corrupt simulation, and both, very, all sorts of systems, of course, can do this. Because anytime somebody gets power, there's going to be simulate corrupt simulations of it. So we have to be very clear. And I think the left has been, as somebody whose, whose heart is helping, you know, underclass marginalized individuals from the very beginning, a feminist heart. I, I am so frustrated with the left's inability to not recognize where the edge of insanity is in relationship and, and the sort of vicious totalitarian extremes of its representation that are so obviously not what the spirit of, of the true essence of the movement is about. And it can't allow itself to differentiate what uh, real is from us. So I love, I love Wilbur's analysis on that. So the clarity of that, the capacity to include and transcend, and then the strength to undo what the central liberal modernist system is capable with its inertia, to be clear about what that's going to be doing. I mean, those, that's exactly the analysis that I would um, as, yeah, support. I, uh... I love Lenny's work, uh, and I, one of the reasons we invited her to be in the Metamodern Anthology project was because of her emphasis on the indigenous, because the metamodern conversation too often is just classical, modern, and postmodern put together and made to work yep. with each other. And the, the more archaic versions need to be in that mix as well. Totally. Uh, that, you know, the simulated versions are very close to Bhaskar's notion of the demi-reality, yeah. right? So you get these weird regressive echoes of things that don't actually embody them. Now, one way to think about that in the integral framework, because the integral framework thinks of these stages, not as single stages of individuals, but as stages moving along multiple trajectories of intelligence, right? So you might be, you might be pluralistic in your cognition, but you might be authoritarian in your emotions. Mm. So we've got to track that. Sure. So one thing is, well, sure, this person's got here mentally, but they mm -hmm. haven't got there morally, socially, emotionally, mm -hmm. and so you get a weird effect. That, that happens, so we've got to be aware of that. But we also yeah. have to be aware of the fact that um, a person never meant the things they were saying, that it was mm. always <laughs> a demi-real simulation. Mm. When they said something that sounded like an advanced postmodern critique, mm -hmm. it was really just they recognized that it was a value flag they could verbally hammer home, and they, were, they right. never comprehended it. Totally. And that's something that... 
uh, modernity has a set of problematic incentive structures that makes it turn on itself. And when it turns on itself, it creates a regressive form of itself. So it's sort of, in a way, is incentivized to prevent people from really becoming modern. It would just like it if you were a pre-modern dogmatist who went around espousing the content of the modern worldview and you had a packable brain for team sport politics and you would buy any new product that was symbolically advocated. So well, that's what a memeplex does, doesn't it? Get the little red skaters out there. So modernity doesn't really want everyone to get to orange. And it has like an education <laughs> system where it teaches you to repeat back the content of the scientific worldview without ever really becoming a scientifically capable human being. And uh, it just needs a few of those to come away and be technicians. Right. And now that post-modernity is in the mix, it does the same thing. It can recreate a, a dogmatic or simplistic version of post-modernity that it can put into kids' brains and they can come up and have it institutionally and bureaucratically reinforced. And it's not even modern, let alone post-modern. And then it can let the pre-modern forces fight each other and it can sell them anything it wants. It can play them against each other in elections. So the postmodern complaint about modernity, that's correct. That's, I think modernity is creating fake conservatism and fake postmodernism. Huh. <laughs> that's certainly, <laughs> I live in the States, remember? <laughs> yeah, you might have seen some of this on the news. <laughs> yeah, but, oh, is that what's happening? Why the hell did they, why didn't MSNBC call you? <laughs> And Fox. Oh my God. Uh, are you, uh, what's your, do you have a. I'm good. If, if we've got more energy and questions, I can keep yeah. going. I can okay. well, that's a half hour or whatever we yeah. like. Yeah, well, it can go for certainly. I still got the energy. Um, right. So uh, let's. Uh, what's your sense of, of the transition from where we are to, I mean, do you have, you, you I, I'll, I'll speak for myself. So I, I'm generally optimistically inclined. That's my structure. I don't have high neuroticism, although I've been there. <laughs> Life has certainly driven me at various times there, but I'm my, and so I, I be optimistic. And at the same time, I'm experienced this, you know, I look out at, I feel like we're on an edge that ranges in outcomes of heaven and hell. And I feel that in my soul very often as I look out at just us as gestalt. Um, do you, what do you, what's your sense of the horizon in relationship to where we are? Do you have one? Well, if I, you know, if I feel out into the world, it looks like on the one hand, simultaneous heaven and hell. Okay. So it's yep. a matter of, it's like a superposition of those things. And that mm -hmm. means it's up to us to steer it one of the two okay. ways, because we're not just sitting back and going, hey, which way are the trend lines going? Should I be optimistic or pessimistic? Right. I, I have a role. So part of my role is, as an old Buddhist psychology guy, I got to choose and cultivate the hopefulness myself. Amen. Part of it is I have a role, like a detector in a quantum experiment, in yep. eliciting one of those superposed positions. Totally. However, that's the feeling quality is of the tremendous mix. However, there's this other feeling quality, which actually, is hold on. I have to, I have to hold on. Hold yeah. on. I love that. I am, I am not putting quite that. I am in, we are in, I need to play the role of detector in the quantum flux. You know, there it is. That's actually what this, uh, we should rename. <laughs> that's exactly right. I love the orientation. And yes, I will be a little quantum thing that says, oh, this bit of information turned out over here. It was entangled over there, but I grabbed it first and lifted it up. And thankfully, the cascade of effects follows. 
<laughs> we're getting into my, I do a riff on shamanic politics, right? Because I think shamanism is a great way to think about sacred naturalness because it's a form of wisdom and spirituality. It's very much about flow, embodiment, multiple states, about serving the village with nature. It's very ecological, but it has these elements. One is you, you maybe have a role <laughs> in manifesting the destiny of the village, so to speak, the global village. Another part is... Um, weirdness is, is real to some extent and it's getting stronger. And this is a, I mean, I was a big Terrence McKenna fan. Mm. I, yeah. I got into him through Timothy Leary and Timothy Leary is one of the guys who I first came across as a kid who had a really big picture, evolutionary multidimensional model. And in fact, tried to do sort of what you're doing, which is here's the stratified version of the psyche, which would enable the different fields of psychology to be operative. Totally. In fact, the fourth branch on the tree, the circumplex, has Timothy Leary's competitive cooperative circumplex. I'm Timothy Leary's on the tree. So through him, I got into Terrence McKenna. This was long before I'd ever had any psychedelic experience, but I had some other strange experiences. And McKenna has this notion of, uh, of a hyper strangeness point toward which time and history are accelerating. Yeah. Right? Everything he says is is far out. It's hard to make a rational model of it, but there's something compelling about this notion that the uncanny is emerging. Yep. And that the more complexity we have in our system, the more we will be weirded out by what's going on. And yep. you know, 2020 was the supreme example so far. Everything was just huge and weird and incongruous. Totally. And I think that is, in addition to heaven and hell, weirdness is showing up more and more. And I think weirdness is a quality the shaman traditionally worked with. Mm. right if guy comes back and you're like hey john where were you and you're like yeah i've been sitting in covered in ash with a bone necklace you know taking drugs in the cemetery you're like what <laughs> why would you do that that's right off the map man <laughs> right and he's like exactly right and i think that's an important piece both in terms of understanding what's emerging in the new technology and the new environments and the possibly the future but also in terms of what people are looking for yep so donald trump for all of the ways we could say that he was, Steve McIntosh says he was the bouncer hired by people who hate liberalism. Totally, that's great um, frame. That's fair, right? And there's also, he said a lot of things that were true in his first election, right? We gotta do something about these trade deals. We gotta do something about this stuff. He promised everybody universal healthcare. So there's that, and he's famous and entertaining. But the other thing he has is he blows minds. Totally. Right. And so there's a shamanic element to politics that I think has been there since the first villages, because the mm. village was run in a way. There was the chieftains, there were yep. the matriarchs, and then there was the weirdo who yep. sort of understood the people and what could be possible. And the way you knew that guy was every time he said anything, you went, what? How? What are you even talking about? That's from some other realm. I don't get it. Yeah. And so I think people recognize some of that in him. And I think we need politicians who are sane and progressive, <laughs> but in order to win, in order to triumph over the existing system, you have to be able to straddle the line between being in and out of what makes sense in order to be a real change agent. So I, I think that. that element of shamanism is necessary. All right. So, right. So here's my empirical shamanism. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. So this is my, this is my empirical spiritual reality. And and uh, and it's the singularity. The the so the singularity. You know, I'm sure you uh, you know 
Ray Kurzweil, uh, first off, Graham Snooks makes it popular. And then Ray Kurzweil, actually, Graham Snooks coins it and then Ray Kurzweil makes it popular, okay? So if you track in the tree of knowledge, you, <clears throat> you track this evolution of complexification, all right? And it's going, and at some level, you can then say basically it hits a limit and goes vertical, all right? So, and basically it's the time between another revolution is the easiest way to calculate this. So Ray Kurzweil then comes along and says, oh, 2045, and we, nobody knows what this means, but I'm going to call it the, the technological singularity, okay? And then Max Borders has come along. He's like, wait a minute, there's a social singularity, okay? And there's another whole other kind of interpretation. Uh, the unified theory, it, the fifth joint point is an interpretation of that singularity, okay? So now you got all this thing, and then this is this weird thing. And then this Korov, Karev, um, there's a Russian mathematician who's, who gets hooked into big history. So big history is just the standard view of, you know, Dave Christian and blah, blah, blah. And it got a lot of people. And so he really gets interested in the singularity. And he looks at Ray Kurzweil's singularity. And then he looks at the, um, in, as, as a Russian scholar, they have access to all these other different kinds of evolutions of technologies and paradigmatic changes. So you have embedded in the Eastern scholarship of Russia, you have all the other big markers that in that culture would then be identified as unbelievable change markers. And then he collects those and puts them on a complex curvature of change, okay? And then he has Ray Kurzweil's and they're basically different sets. They have a few points that are in the same place, but they're basically different sets of events because they're different histories that are identified. And yet, so then what he does is he looks at and he sees that actually it's a hyperbolic exponential at the end of it. Okay. So the hyperbolic exponential. So it means it's accelerating and accelerating faster on the tail than Ray Kurzweil. So he applies this map this model, super freaking simple model of the evolution of complexity. And then he applies it to the Western model and he applies it to the Eastern model. And one of them shows up at 2027 and the other shows up at 2029 is going vertical at a level of like 0.994 and 0.996 on a super simple curve, okay? Now to me, I look at that shit and I'm just like, how the hell is that happening? <laughs> and what I mean is there really is this, this emergent collective potential for paradigmatic evolution that now is aligning us in a particular way as our consciousness wakes up. And you really do see this intersection of so many different lenses. So the tree, tree of knowledge is basically said a long time ago, and my, I'm not without even realizing, it's like, well, it's our social technological singularity that hopefully organizes our natural sacredness with the emerging technology and then results in a collective awakening towards a higher level of consciousness. And now you have like a, this empirical graph that says, yeah, that's going to happen in 2028. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, it's crazy. hard to, uh, you know, <laughs> you never want to put too much weight into a specific prediction. I, totally. Uh, the totally. trend and lines are fascinating. The trend lines are fascinating. I, I think about the, uh, there's a speculative ontology there. There's a, a prescription for how you have to be a healthy human being under those conditions. And then there's notions of how society would have to be in order to thrive rather than be destroyed. But so on the ontological side, you know, I, you know, when I was a kid, I was read a lot of McKenna, right? And it seemed like he was saying there's a movement from a habit of history into novelty. Mm. He met Rupert Sheldrake, 
uh, it's a famous conversation where yeah. he says this morphogenic field theory is the most conservative possible theory. And he's got this weird way of he's like, what could be more conservative than to say that things are as they are because they were as they were. But what I don't know is why anything new happens. <laughs> right. So he was like, how do we, how does, how is time moving away from habit into novelty? And that's how people normally phrase it. But when I looked at the maps, the charts he'd made, I thought, Oh no, he's talking about the accelerating convergence of novelty and habit. And I didn't know what that meant until I started playing around with Stephen Wolfram's ideas. And Mm. one of the things they built was a music generator and you could run a complex equation. I think the site still exists and it would play as if it was a saxophone or as if it was rock and roll, a piece of a pattern that had never been used to make music before. And it can just keep sequencing down those patterns so that each one is actually novel. This chunk of music has never been produced before. So I thought, this is push button novelty? Oh my God. I'm like, that's a stage in the convergence of novelty and habit for sure, right? And as our our tools get richer, we're in a situation where more and more of the kind of reliable novelty that we see in nature is available to us within our own systems. Oh my God. So that's the logical part. The sociological part is um, we've got to build in a way that's flexible, that is able to change, that can support people when crises come, because regardless of what happens this year, pandemics aren't over. Climate change isn't over. Surprising disruptions, black swans are going to hit us. It's not back to business as usual. So we have to be prepared to create the maximum amount of shock absorber processes, the maximum amount of well-being when we get surprised. We need to be precautionary and flexible and do this at the scale and tempo at which we're seeing things hit us. If, if we do that, then you get societies that will thrive. And if you don't, they'll just break down. Totally. And That's the same exactly. thing for individuals, which is if you have a relationship practice you have your finance practice, you have your meditative practice, you have your psychological health in the right place, then you're going to be able to surf increasing intensities of weirdness. And if you're not, it's going to hit you like it's a trauma factor. Totally. It's, it's anti-fragility, flexible, adaptive, uh, in a coherent integration, basically. And that's, and that's absolutely, and we need to do that individually, relationally, and societally. And, and that's exactly the infrastructural, structural, functional dynamics uh, angle on that. And uh, yeah, completely. Man, I really love the connection uh, to the novelty and, and the Wolfram playing music. Uh, that's a that's a beautiful. And my dad was like, so what, the sky turns purple in 2028? It's like, no, dad, that sky doesn't turn purple in 20. Hopefully, God. Okay. Um, but, but, and so, but the, to me, what it is, what I love the singularity for and that line for is precisely because my normal skepticism is, is, is drives away from that. So it creates an adjacency in me for a particular kind of grounded mysticism that I would never take seriously. <laughs> and so that's this playful thing. It's like, I can actually pull a mode of my energy information to take this seriously and just be playful with it in a particular kind of liminal space. Uh, and that, and it is this kind of adjacent flexibility in relationship to tw- multiple modes of thinking that will afford us the kind of coherent, integrative, flexible, anti-fragile responses that are necessary. I'm, I'm coming back around to God in my mind in a certain way, which is 
you know, McKenna talked about the hyperdimensional object at the end of time, which is a little bit like the Vajra jewel in Tibetan Buddhism. Yep. And, you know, where is this thing located? Um, because we can encounter it and uh, it always blows your mind. <laughs> it's, it's very shiny. It's very reflective. It's a convergence point of all the patterns of which you are aware and it exceeds those and leaves you stunned. And this thing is, that's what it looks like personally or collectively to reach this apex that feeds back to you. But at the same time, in order to do that, the syntax, the syntax of the ontological structure of reality has to contain that possibility. So mm. in that sense, it's a little bit like that God point was always there. Yep. And you can relate to it in a second person model. You know, integrals yep. sort of two ways to handle that. You could say, Hey, here's everythingness. And you can talk to that as a first, second or third person. But yep. on the other hand, it doesn't care. Everythingness doesn't care. What cares is a convergence point, That's a right. site at which all the patterns reflect back to you with an intensification of value. That's a God who has a will or a purpose. And so yeah. that's sort of, I think that's what that singularity is. And it's present. McKenna thought of it as a fractal. So yep. there's the social historical scale of that fractal. Totally. There's the, the moment of that fractal too, because you can encounter something like that in yourself almost at any moment or in any day or in any hour. Absolutely. So it's, it's just, you know, it's just, that's God for me is that thing. Totally. That's exactly right. <laughs> and actually, as I was building the garden, then, uh, and then I was going through some transformation, then what popped for me and my own little, you know, ontology, my own subjective ideographic was this elephant sun God, you know, that's, and then this became, you know, cause it, my first chapter in the unified theory book is, can you see the elephant, which is off the Indian, metaphor and then i was waking up to the concept of god and the whole the image i mean i'm pretty far away as possible uh, you know sort of in terms of my development from hinduism okay but then you see for me then it's the horizon of the uh, of you know the elephant sun god in hinduism and it's one of the oldest archetypal frames in in society so here i am seeing that and looping around both the earth and entirety and all of human culture and having this be the lodestar point that's reflecting back with it or with all of its luminescence and brightness. And so that's the, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Elephant sun God. I love it. I, I often think of it as a hummingbird. It's buzzing. It's doing an own thing. Right. And it's iridescent right. and it's organic. And it's got a really sharp point and a really right. point. And I imagine it like half a moment from now facing ah, all the time. Of course. Right. And where are the birds and the, the, the nectar and everything? It's, oh, I love that. It's, it's, it's located at what we call next. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> whatever that point is from whatever yeah. quantum, whatever quantum position we are in the cosmic coordinates, there's a, the hummingbird of next. <laughs> now, that's the adjacency version. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Now, now he's buzzing around the elephant sun god for me. <laughs> And and I told uh, um, I told uh, Bruce that actually now I have the image of Mount Sophia. So I have the elephant sun god coming off of Mount Sophia because for Bruce, uh, Mount Sophia that represents a, this very similar kind of yeah. uh, point. Damn. It was, that was pretty good. Um, yeah, right. I, I hope, we, you know, so listen, audience, you guys decide what is the best damn conversation ever. I don't know, but I'll put it forth. <laughs> it's up there. Take some of those things I want a conversation to uh, do. <laughs> that is definitely, that is definitely, wow. 
That, um, yeah, so just to, that to me, I'm just feeling resonant harmony. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. You're, you, you know, you're, you really are remarkable, Damon. You're the, the, the magnitude of the synergies uh, and systems that you've put together um, is just, it's just beautiful, man. I really thank you for your efforts and, you know, all this, because this is, if, if, if we are pulling particular data points in some cosmic quantum uh, state, uh, thank God some people are finding the information energy f f uh, phase fluctuations that you are finding, man. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Well, I'm, I'm notoriously bad at receiving praise and appreciation, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> well, so at least I'm basking in the sun god of your hummingbird. So we'll just put it that way. And, and if that's what it is, that's cool. I can take it. I will. Uh, so that's great, man. Yeah, let's, uh, I got a few thoughts about your book, but maybe we can talk about that when the recording's off. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. All right, so we'll bring, we'll bring this to a close. This feels like a, a wonderful, uh, and I look forward to sharing it with folks, and thanks so much, and I certainly will be uh, seeing if we can circle back in to do this kind of thing again. This is what, uh, for me, in terms of filling soul and spirit, you know, that's uh, 100 minutes well spent. This is, this is religion for me. I like being uh, with you, Greg. Fantastic. <laughs> All right.